Welcome to the New Life Philly podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. Amen. Well, let's, let's get into uh, our, our message for today. Um, earlier this week, I was sitting for the first time in almost two years at my favorite coffee shop in Germantown. Amen. I was, I was hyped up about it. I was at Uncle Bobby's chilling and working on my sermon. I haven't been able to be in there for about two years. And, you know, I, I'm, that's a place where I get my, my creative juices flowing as I'm in the text and in the word. But I, I'm getting my juices flowing and I come up with what I believe is a brand new word. And I'm excited. Y'all know I like new words, right? Um, so I came up with this word, invisibilization. Amen. Invisibilization. And then I did a dumb thing. I looked it up and found out, Larry, you didn't come up with no word. That's already out there. It's already being used. And it deflated me a little bit for a minute. But, but when I saw some of the context it was used in, particularly in sociology and anthropology, it made a lot of sense. And I, I was reading uh, from, uh, in, in one quote about this word from the journal, listen to this, this sounds smart, the Journal of Social Epistemology, amen, from 2018, a Spanish social anthropologist called Beno Herzog, and he wrote this. He says, exclusion and marginalization understood as processes of silencing or invisibilizing social groups are particularly serious in cases involving social suffering, i.e. socially produced suffering and or suffering that can be eliminated or alleviated socially. Now, here's a quote. I think we have it on the board as well. He says, making silence heard, giving voice silenced, and bringing the invisibilized back into the public domain are therefore fundamental tasks of solidarity in reaching a higher degree of social integration. Now, that man just wrote something right there. That was more than I had in mind when I thought I came up with a new word. But it's an important word for us today because we're going to look at how Jesus wrestles with this idea of invisibilization. And there's another word I'm going to use as well that I do think I made up later on. So listen for that. But, but we're going to look at how this takes root and how this took root and how we need to be those who overcome it. So let's stand together, if we can, and read from Mark chapter 8. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Tim went ahead of us because we had a, an issue where I was out one week, but we're back on track. And so we're going to go back to the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 8. So let's read God's word together. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. 
They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Verse six. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the region of Dalmanutha. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Amen. Today, I'm going to be preaching on the subject, whose kingdom is it anyway? Whose kingdom is it Anyway, Jesus is speaking to that reality, and the main idea before I pray is, is simply this. Jesus' boundary-breaking compassion marks him as the Messiah for all peoples. Somebody say all peoples. All peoples. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us even now by your spirit and have your way in our hearts to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. You may be seated. Two main things I want to look at today as we looked at this passage, whose kingdom is it anyway? And the first thing I want to look at is the compassionate king, the compassionate King, in, We see that in verses 1 through 10 as this story progresses of Jesus feeding these people. In the first three verses, we get the scene set for us. There's a large crowd that is gathered. They're in a remote place. Jesus tells us that some of them have come from a long ways away. They're out in a desert place. And it's been three days with Jesus, and Jesus says, we just can't send these folk away hungry. Some of them are going to fall out if we do that. They need some sustenance for their bodies. Can you imagine how compelling it must have been to be around Jesus, that you would come from a long distance, not in your SUV, amen? not on a motorbike, but you would come from a long distance to a remote place and be there for three days as this man is teaching. Amen? 
Amen. I know y'all wouldn't last three hours with me teaching, but with Jesus, they're there for three days. He's a compelling figure. He's a, a powerful figure. And so they're there and they're neglecting their own physical health right now. But Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't uh, uh, neglect their physical health. But the Bible says he has compassion on them. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus has compassion. We saw that in Mark chapter 6 when he feeds 5,000. He has compassion. That word is an interesting word because the, the, the noun for compassion, it talks about the, the idea, well, it comes from the idea of your inner self, your, your bowels, your intestines, something that comes from the deepest part of who you are. It comes out from inside of you. In 1 John 3.17, uh, the scripture says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, that's the same word here, how can the love of God be in that person? The King James, I love the King James sometimes, instead of saying has no pity, it says shutteth up his bowels of compassion. Amen shutteth up his bowels of compassion. This compassion of Jesus is tapping into the very core of his mission, of his person, of who he is as the Savior, who he is as a man and as God in the flesh. This is who Jesus is. He has compassion on whole persons. Not just on a soul, not just on a spirit, but on a body. On a hungry body. We see the modus operandi of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 when he takes the scroll in Nazareth. And when he does that, he proclaims his ministry in his hometown. You, you know these words. He says, the spirit of, a, of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to, pray, to proclaim good news to who? The poor. The poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for who? The prisoners. the prisoners. And recovery of sight for who? The blind. The blind. To set who free? The oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes and it is good news. When Jesus comes, it is good news. Jesus doesn't know anything about a disembodied gospel that takes away uh, uh, people's real physical, emotional needs from the spiritual needs. He sees whole people to be cared for and loved with the love of God. And that's how he walks out his gospel. Any gospel that doesn't do that. That, that breaks us up as if the physical and the spiritual don't have anything to do with one another is a deficient gospel. It's not this gospel. And so he puts it all together. But in response, as he is having compassion, again, the disciples just show us they're not quite there yet. <laughs> How are you going to do it, Jesus? He just did it a little while ago. With 5,000 people. He just did it, but now they're saying, we're, we're in a remote place, Jesus. You were in a remote place before. Before they're asking, how much money you got? We don't have enough denarii to get this thing done. Now they're saying, there's no corner stores here anyway. Wegmans is way far away. We can't do this. But 
here you, here you go. I, I want you to see for a minute the continuity of this miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. How similar they are in many ways. First of all, both of these miracles occur in a desert place, in a remote place. They're far away. Secondly, the hunger of the crowd spurs Jesus to compassion. That same word is used in both of the texts in chapter 6 and chapter 8. In both instances, the disciples talk about how it is impossible to feed such a large crowd. But Jesus, both times, listen to this, Jesus asked the disciples what they have. Jesus As you see a problem, as you are overwhelmed by a problem, he's always going to ask you, what do you have? It doesn't seem like I have much, Jesus. I'm I'm just little old me in this place. I don't have too much. But Jesus is going to ask you what you have because he's going to want you to use what you have, what you can do, what impact you can make. He is going to tap each and every one of his disciples and say, what do you have? What do you have? So the next piece that is here, Jesus blesses what they're able to scrounge together and has the disciples give it out to the crowd. This is where the miracle takes place. Five loaves of, of, of bread in chapter six, seven loaves of, of bread here in chapter eight. And from those seven loaves of bread and a few small fish, he feeds all of these people. And that's the last one here. The crowd eats to its full and they collect abundant leftovers. When Jesus has compassion, he takes care of the need. He takes care of it fully. And so we see the continuity of these two miraculous feedings of thousands of people. Now, of course, there are some difference. There's a different number of loaves. There's a different number of leftovers. There's a difference in the number of people that are fed. In in the first one, the disciples initiate it. In this miracle, Jesus initiates it. He's the one who asks the question to get things started for this feeding of the 4,000. But here is what I believe the crux of the difference is. Here's the important difference. Here's the difference that Mark wanted his readers to see, that the Holy Spirit wants you and I to see. In the feeding of the 5,000, he was feeding uh, an almost all Jewish audience. And now in feeding 4,000, he's feeding thousands and thousands of Gentiles. This is the conclusion, as it were, of this part of Jesus Galilean or, or his ministry to the Gentiles outside of Galilee proper many times. And he has done all of this ministry there. And here he's feeding 4,000 men, women, perhaps children, almost all Gentiles. So that brings us to the second part of what we want to look at today. And that is in verses 11 through 13. I called it forcing Jesus to know, not K-N-O-W, but forcing Jesus to answer no. No, I'm not going to do that. I won't do that. The Pharisees come and 
As soon as Jesus gets off this boat, <laughs> and now he's back on the soil of Galilee among the Jewish population, when Jesus sets his feet on the land out of the boat, the scripture says the Pharisees began to question Jesus. Oh, here it comes right away. And it says to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Look at his reaction. It says he sighed deeply. He sighed deeply. He, he's, he, he now the bowels of his compassion that he just had, had, had demonstrated to this crowd. Now from his innermost being, he is burdened. He is struggling with these questions and with the disposition of these Pharisees. They ask him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus says, I just can't do that. Now, I don't know if this strikes anyone else as weird. He just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and a couple little fish. He had fed 5,000 a little while ago. He had healed people with leprosy. He had walked on the water. He had done every sort and kind of miracle. He had cast out demons. And you're asking for a sign? Are you crazy? How about all these signs? Here's the thing. They're not asking for a miracle. There's enough miracles of Jesus. They don't need a miracle. They want a sign. Look what the text says. It says to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Literally, we could read this. Now, looked in the Greek and, and just looked at the order of the words here. We could read it this way. They were demanding a sign from heaven from him. To test him. So all of this is to say, is to test Jesus. Not can you do miracles. Not can you do neat stuff. Not can you feed thousands. We know all that. We're going to test you. What's the test? The test is this. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the expected Messiah? The problem that is going on here is not that Jesus isn't doing enough miracles, not that he's not showing enough power, but he's not meeting the expectations of the Pharisees. So what are the expectations of a first century Jewish leader living under Roman occupation and awaiting the Messiah? What are they expecting? We already said a miracle what they're looking for is not a miracle, but an apocalyptic sign of the end of the age. And in their mind, that sign is this. You have come to put down the emperor. You have come to overrun Rome. You are putting Rome in its place. And all these Gentile nations around us and these Gentile people that are trying to get close to us, you're going to put them in their place and we will rise up and be the chosen people of God. Look at us. 
This is what they're waiting for. This is what they're expecting. This is what they're hoping for. And this is exactly what Jesus will not do. He won't do it. They want Jesus to kowtow to their specific messianic hope so that they can live on top of the heap, untroubled lives, unmoved out of their religious bubble. We're doing our thing and look, we're on top now. And here's the thing, not only would Jesus not do that 2,000 years ago, but brothers and sisters, we need to know this now. Jesus won't do that for us now. Not interested in putting us on the top of the heap. He's not interested in us being seated in the greatest places of power so that we can dictate what happens. He's not interested in that kind of power. It's another kind of power that he asks us, Sister Pam, to stand on. It's a different power. It's not the power of this world. Here's what I want you to see. We are not called, hear me now, we're not called to a culture war where we're seeking to destroy an enemy. That's not what God has called his people to. We're called to gospel-soaked lives that respect all of our neighbors. Somebody say all of our neighbors that respect all of our neighbors and work for radical transformation. That radical transformation may be so small day by day, month by month, year by year, that you hardly see it. It doesn't mean something's going to pop off tomorrow, but it means that we are faithful people of God who will love others and care for others and respect others and work for that radical transformation that God is about doing and that his word tells us of we're going to do it over the long haul boring things in life mundane things in life but we love but we see but we care for respects all of our neighbors and works for radical transformation how by embodying and living out the love of jesus By the power of the spirit, not by the power of the sword, not by the power of politics, not by economic might and power, but by the power of the spirit of God that enables me to love someone that I have absolutely nothing that I can agree with them about but I know that they're a fellow image bearer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are. The social, political, economic, and religious upheaval in our time is unsettling to all of us. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see as well that this is a fresh opportunity for us to hear the voice of God. Can you hear it? New Life Church. God is troubling the waters so that we might hear his voice. Not so that we'll double down 
in the fashion of the Pharisees and look to get Christians on top of the heap again, but so that we can reconsider and we can reimagine what it might be to live as those who have been brought to Jesus Christ, who have faith in him and live out that love in a pluralistic society like ours. This is what God is calling us to as his people. We're not to raise a political banner, not a donkey and not an elephant, but we raise the blood-stained banner of the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the one who died for us and was raised again on the third day. For all peoples, can you hear him, New Life Church? That means that we're willing To be a people who, instead of grasping for power wherever we can find it, we're willing to give up power. We're willing to give up our preferences. We're willing even to give up our positions if it will enable more people who are in desperate need of God's love to experience Jesus Christ as the sweet smelling aroma and not as a stumbling block cloaked in a distorted gospel that seems like anything but good news. And I, I want to say this, I'm going to go in on this a little bit in just a second, but here, the, the problem is that for many outside of the church, they don't see uh, Christians or Christianity or the gospel as good news. They see it as something altogether different. And brothers and sisters, we've got to do what God is calling us to do to change that where we can. The gospel is, was, and always will be good news when it's rightly understood. We are people of the book, and we are people of the spirit. We are Jesus people, and we have the good news of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is dealing in these verses with an issue that the Pharisees have. Why are they testing him so? Why do they want this sign? They want it because Jesus is treating 4,000 people who are not the chosen people as if they are the chosen people. He's giving the benefits of the kingdom to the dogs who should be on the outside. You remember just a little while ago in in Mark chapter 7, Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, Chris preached about that a little while ago, and, and she just says, look, even the dogs get the little morsels. They get the crumbs of bread from the master's table. And so Jesus heals her daughter. Look at what is happening now. In the culmination of this ministry to the Gentiles, Jesus isn't giving a morsel to a dog, but he is giving a feast to thousands. He is saying, my love is with you. Doesn't matter what the religious folk are saying. My love is with you. Here here it goes. Perhaps the biggest issue in the church, and I'm using the big C for church. I don't have big C up there, but that's what's in my mind. The biggest issue in the church in our day is that the church often, even if not on purpose, here's my new word, gentilizes groups of people that we're not comfortable with. We gentilize you. 
We're the children of Abraham. We're the chosen ones. Yahweh chose us. We're the elect. We are the people of God. But what we do is people that we're not comfortable with, it's easy to Gentilize or invisibilize other folk. In our life group on this past Tuesday night, we got into a conversation. I didn't see it coming. It wasn't in the notes. It wasn't in, in anything but the spirit's mind that this was going to be a conversation in our life group. But, but some younger folk in our group began to talk about how almost all of their friends who they grew up with in church, in Bible school, loving Jesus, doing uh, young people Jesus stuff together, almost all of them have left the church. They've left the church and, and, and that troubled me and I followed up on that. But I also reached out to a lot of younger uh, believers here at New Life. And I asked the question, can you give me your top three reasons just from your gut? Don't do any research. Just how, what are you feeling about this of why younger people are leaving the Christian church in America? Why is that? I'm not even talking about why aren't people coming to the church who aren't Christians. I'm talking about people that grew up in it, that did all the good Jesus-y stuff as young people, as teenagers, even into young adulthood, but have chosen to, to, to leave it all together. What's going on with that? And so I want to put up some of those answers instead of giving you my compilation of it and trying to figure it out i, I want to give you quotes just a few quotes from that why are young people leaving the church here's the first one the church is avoidant of the difficult conversations that directly impact its congregation and this was particularly the conversations uh, that are difficult for younger people that they're curious about. We can say Jesus is the answer, but that question isn't allowed here. <laughs> they're avoidant. It says topics that are hard to stomach are often avoided, which results in people feeling unseen and overlooked. I don't even matter. You don't want to know what I'm thinking. You don't want to hear what I'm struggling with. This might not even be a safe place to struggle with anything. Another person, and this is under the same quote, not this isn't the next quote, but said, church is irrelevant and has no value to young people. My God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh has come to save and to heal and to deliver. And yet somehow the message that gets through is it's irrelevant. It doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't touch my life in any meaningful way. We've got to hear this. See, here, here's what I, I fear. Sometimes in the church, we can wax eloquent about the doctrines of God. We can talk about the wonderful reality of the sovereignty of God. Oh, I love that subject. But never deal with the hard questions it raises. I can tell you what theologians said 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago about the sovereignty of God. But what do I do about the evil and the wickedness that I see all around me? Yeah. On Wednesday, I had the, the privilege of being at a lunch at Eastern University with about 15 other people with a Rwandan bishop. He was a Tutsi. 
You know the genocide that happened there. It started on the 6th of April in 1994, lasted for about 100 days. In those 100 days, roughly a million people were killed in a nation of about 7 million people. The population of the Tutsis in that country was only about 14% and 80% of the Tutsis were killed. This bishop's parents were killed in that genocide. Can you imagine those numbers extrapolated to the United States? We've got 330 million people that live here. That would be 45 million people killed in three months. And of a specific population, almost all of one population decimated in that three-month period. That one group singled out. Okay, now let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Look at your families. Look at your own struggles. Look at the world around us. We can't talk about doctrines up here somewhere. We've got to bring it right here into real life and struggle with it and talk about it. And it's hard and sometimes it doesn't make sense and it leaves people to have more questions than answers. But that is what we come together as God's people for. Uncomfortable conversations. New life. Church, in the coming years, we're going to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations about things we're not comfortable. I'm not sure I've got the answer on. And can I tell you, as the pastor of this church, there are a lot of things that I don't have the answer on. I'm wrestling. How do we deal with this? The second thing that was written, that I picked out of all that was written, negative experiences with Christians, the church, and perception of Christianity as a highly politicized, closed-minded, oppressive institution. That's not the institution of Jesus Christ. That's not the institution of the Bible. That's not the organism of the body of Christ. But that is how many people are processing the church that they see lived out on their television screens, on radio and in print and in other ways. And they, they interact with it and they see this politicized, closed-minded, difficult place that why would I want to be there? The last one that I'll point out is this, the culture, oh, this is devastating. Someone wrote, the culture is more devastating, is, is more loving than the church. God knows that should not be. They wrote, and if we image bearers are viewed as unloving, they're talking specifically about if we Christians, followers of Jesus, are viewed as unloving, this translates to others that God is unloving. So they look for love somewhere else and it's a cycle other folks told me about other kinds of spiritualities crystals and other kinds of of cultish religions and other ways that people are looking to fight to to bridge that spiritual gap and they're being led away from the church it's not a safe place it's not a loving place for me i can't get it here but i have that need i'm going to find it somewhere one person wrote, feeling like they can't be true to their flawed selves. How many flawed selves are in the room right now? You better raise your hand. Amen, amen. We're all flawed. 
We all struggle in various areas, and we've got to be, have a place where we can be honest about that. Let me bring, begin to bring this together. So one Gentilized group is anyone younger than a Gen Xer, amen? Especially the people in my generation, they can be Gentilized, otherized, um, put to the side. Here's what I mean when I say Gentilized. I mean those who can be written off because their concerns are not the right ones. Their wounds are not legitimate. And they don't fit. They're not our kind of people. That was the Gentiles for the Pharisees. And they're mad at Jesus, the Pharisees are, because he's including them in blessings of Messiah. So my question for us, what are some invisibilized or Gentilized groups to us? For some of us, it may be liberals. People who are politically liberal, we will Gentilize them. For others, it's conservatives. You believe that? You must be out your mind. We Gentilize them. For many, it could be LGBTQ+. We, we other them. We Gentilize them. We, they're, they're not our kind of people. What about incarcerated folks? What about immigrants, refugees, the poor? We could go on and on and on. What about wealthy um, white men? That could be the, the group that is otherized or Gentilized. It can be any one of us in any way. So let me come back to the question of the day. Whose kingdom is it anyway? The Pharisees and, the, and Jesus saw this in different ways. For the Pharisees, the primary interest was self. You can come up and play, Micah. The primary interest is self. It is the preservation of their own power. For Jesus, the primary interest is in others. True compassion that is not made up but comes from who he is, the deepest part of who he is. Whose kingdom is it anyway? The kingdom orientation of the Pharisees, it's exclusive. Our kind of people. And we're going to be at the top. We're going to get there one way or another. For Jesus, it's an inclusive kingdom. An inclusive kingdom which invites everyone 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 to experience the wonder of the love of God and finally the posture the posture of the Pharisees what do they say to Jesus you need to give us a sign in in other words we've got the word of God before us you've done all these other things we don't want to struggle with having to believe and have faith and trust just show us let's just see it right right there just like that we don't we don't have to worry about trust and faith and believing just show it to us they want subjectively satisfying proofs but the way of jesus is faith and trust in god 
The way of Jesus is the way of Gethsemane. The way of Jesus is is wrestling with the Father. The way of Jesus is sweating drops of blood. The way of Jesus is if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. But you come to this point, not my will, but thy will be done. We wrestle with faith. We struggle at times with trusting God. But we need to hold on to him like that. Whose kingdom is it anyway? For just a moment, I want you to think of a group that you have Gentilized, invisibilized, or otherized in your own mind in the recent past. Think think of a group that you've done that to recently. If, If you think of a group, raise your hand and then you can put it back down. We all do it. We've all done it. Here is the challenge for us. What is one way? Think of that group. Think of that group. You raised your hand. What is one way that you can see them with the compassion of Jesus and take a brand new approach. They're image bearers of the living God deserving of an outpouring of God's love. God help us to embody that. Help us to live that out. Help us not, Lord. Let me pray. Lord, help us not to be in the seat of the Pharisees complaining that the wrong people got blessed. But God, help us to desire that every person would be made aware of the blessings of Messiah. The blessings of Jesus, the love of God. And Lord, I pray that we will become more and more that safe place for all kinds of people in our community. Even that we might not agree with on some things, but that no one could say we're not loved when we come to New Life Church. Lord, let that be the embodiment of our lives let that be the ethos of our gatherings and let that be how we live out this faith in Jesus that there are no more Jew or Gentile (laughs) there's no more slave or free there's no first class or second class citizens male and female but we're all one in Christ Lord help us to be people who live and walk by the Spirit of God. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's Word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.